Hi everyone and welcome back to Hungry for History. I'd like to do sort of a mini-series with my next few episodes and talk about some amazing women who managed to wield a lot of power despite the laws and attitudes of the times and places in which they lived forbidding that. And I was going to have a good name for this series. I was going to call it something like, you know, Epic Girl Bosses of History. And then I googled the term girl boss and realized that it's not as flattering a term as I thought it was. So just imagine that there's a cool name for this. Um, Because basically anywhere you look, no matter how sexist it is, you're going to find impressive and influential women. And I'm going to talk about a few of them. Today we're going to talk about some of those women from ancient Egypt. Now, the most famous female pharaoh was obviously Cleopatra. So I'm going to talk about other pharaohs. I will talk about the Ptolemaic dynasty, which Cleopatra is a part of, in my next episode because, you know, she's great, she's interesting, and I love Egyptian history and that dynasty. But Egypt is a lot more than just Cleopatra. There were 30 dynasties of indigenous rulers in Egypt, and that began with a pharaoh called Narmer, or maybe Menes, we're not sure according to history, in about 3100 years BC. So that's 5,000 years ago. More than 5,000 years ago, really. So who was Narmer, the you know first pharaoh of all these 30 dynasties? If you look at the pharaoh's hat, you may have seen it before. It sort of looks like a white bowling pin inside of a red bucket. Those corresponded to two halves of Egypt. Before Narmer, there was Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt, and Lower Egyptian kings wore the red bucket hat, and Upper Egyptian kings wore the white bowling pin. So Narmer, the very first pharaoh of the indigenous 30 dynasties of Egypt, wore both of those hats together in what we know now as the pharaoh hat, as symbolic of the fact that he combined Egypt. He was the first person to rule over both Lower and Upper Egypt. There were many powerful and interesting people in Egypt before Narmer, and they're called proto-dynastic, because Egypt is divided into a lot of periods, starting from Narmer onwards, and so it's easier to just group everybody before Egypt is unified into one era. Now, Egyptian history is long, because Egypt is one of the oldest societies in the world, and therefore it's pretty complicated to organize. To go very quickly... If you go through Egyptian history, you go from the early dynastic period to something called the Old Kingdom. Then there's the first intermediate period, which leads into the Middle Kingdom. Then there's the second intermediate period. See, there's a pattern here, which led into the New Kingdom, which led into the third intermediate period, which led to the late period, which led to the Ptolemaic period, which is where Cleopatra is. So you have to go through a ton of history-rich eras filled with amazing things to talk about before you get to Cleopatra which is why I'm not starting with her. I absolutely love ancient Egyptian history. I would be so happy to do a longer series if you guys want me to. But today I'm going to focus on one period, the New Kingdom. Even deeper, I'm going to go into just the 18th dynasty of Egypt. Now, the New Kingdom lasted from 1549-ish BCE to 1069-ish BCE, basically the 16th to 11th centuries BCE. That's the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties of Egypt. The reason the New Kingdom is really interesting is because it's the period in which Egypt was at its most powerful. It was when Egypt was largest as a territory and also wealthiest. So some of the most famous pharaohs in history who weren't Cleopatra are from the New Kingdom. The 19th and 20th dynasties are also really cool. The 19th dynasty is often called the Ramesid dynasty because there were 11 pharaohs named Ramses, 
including Ramses the Great, who was a very interesting pharaoh, um, not just because he did great things, but also because he fathered a hundred children. So I may do an episode on him at some point. But today we're going to talk about the 18th dynasty, which is sometimes called the Thutmose dynasty because they named four different guys Thutmose. The 18th dynasty lasted from 1549-ish to 1262-ish. And before I talk about the kings and queens and interesting men and women of the 18th dynasty, there's a few important things you need to know about ancient Egypt. First, kings often married their sisters. Yes, it is incestuous. And also, pharaohs often had more than one wife. Because pharaohs could have so many wives, and this also happened so long ago, figuring out lineages is pretty confusing. But I'm going to do my best in this podcast. The other thing that you need to know for today's episode is that ancient Egyptian religion was polytheistic. They worshipped a lot of different gods at the same time. The most powerful of these gods was the sun god Ra, also called Amun-Ra, who was sort of the king of the gods. And that's all you need to know for background. So the 18th dynasty starts out with four men, several of whom are named Thutmose, and then we get to Hatshepsut, who was a woman. She was the second female pharaoh ever to rule in her own right. The first was a woman named Sobekneferu, who ruled for about three years in the 12th dynasty. I don't know much about her other than that her name Sobekneferu means that she was named after the crocodile god Sobek, which is very unusual for a pharaoh. But Hatshepsut, was not only the first female pharaoh to rule for a long time, but was one of the most powerful pharaohs Egypt ever saw. Originally, she was the principal wife, so the most important wife, of her half-brother Thutmose II, who was the fourth pharaoh of this dynasty. When Thutmose II died, his son Thutmose III, by a different wife, not Hatshepsut's son, would have inherited the throne, but he was too, So Hatshepsut became his regent and ruled instead of him, and just kept ruling, even as he got older. She asserted her lineage in order to make this claim that she was the rightful pharaoh, because she was the only child of Thutmose I and his principal wife, who was named Amos. So theoretically, she was arguing that she had a purer and more royal bloodline than Thutmose III, because he was descended from non-principal wives. That's why I said this is complicated. We're not sure exactly when Hatshepsut began to rule. It was sometime around the turn of the 15th century BCE. But she's a huge part of the reason Egypt became so rich and powerful during the 18th dynasty, because she reestablished ancient trade routes and basically made Egypt hella money from doing that. So what did she do with all this money? She built hundreds of buildings. And not only were there a lot of buildings, but they were fancier than the buildings built by the pharaohs who came before her. Pharaohs like to brag and they like to show off. And the way that Hatshepsut did that was through architecture. So pretty much every museum that has anything to do with Egypt, any history museum in the world that mentions Egypt or any art museum, will have statues from the reign of Hatshepsut because she built so many. For example, the Museum of Modern Art in New York has an entire room called the Hatshepsut Room, just filled with stuff from her reign. She was one of the first pharaohs to build a mortuary temple, which is sort of like a huge grave that's really fancy. The pyramids are examples of mortuary temples, but they came later. She was one of the first pharaohs to build one of these temples in a place called the Valley of Kings, which is near the ancient city of Thebes on the west bank of the Nile River. And 
a lot of the kings from the New Kingdom, and many of the most famous Egyptian pharaohs in history were buried in the Valley of Kings. So when it was excavated in the early 20th century, a lot of what we knew about Egypt was discovered there. Basically, that means Hatshepsut was so cool, smart, and powerful, and such a great building commissioner that later pharaohs copied her, even though she was a woman. She ruled 21 or 22 years before she died. We think she might have died from bone cancer. And the way that she got this bone cancer was because you could say that science was a little less developed 3,000 years ago. And the lotion that pharaohs and queens used for itchy skin or dry skin was carcinogenic. <laughs> so we're pretty sure that she actually got bone cancer from using carcinogenic cancer lotion. But, you know, she didn't know. A mummy that we're pretty sure may have been Hatshepsut was found in 1903, and we're still studying her and her grave. Now, one of the pharaohs who came after her, either Thutmose III, who was the guy she was regent for, or Amenhotep II, who came after him, tried to erase her from history. You can see temples where there's whole blank stretches of wall because somebody scraped out Hatshepsut's name. We think that this is partly because the pharaohs wanted to make it seem like they did all the cool stuff that Hatshepsut really did, but also she was a woman. She was a woman pharaoh. That was not heard of. It was not normal. And possibly Thutmose III was embarrassed that she reigned instead of him for so long. Only three or four indigenous women were ever pharaohs of Egypt. And of those three or four, two happened during the 18th dynasty. Now we're going to skip ahead a century to talk about a crazy pharaoh. Yes, he is a man, but he's definitely worth mentioning here as we talk about the 18th dynasty. He was born Amenhotep IV, but I say born because he changed his name. He changed his name to Akhenaten, and he ruled from the 1350s to the 1330s BCE. So why did he change his name? As I said before, ancient Egypt had this polytheistic religion in which the sun god named Ra or Amun-Ra was the most important. For some reason, Akhenaten didn't vibe with that. He decided to create an entirely new religion called Atenism. Basically, Amun-Ra is the sun god, but there's also a sun disk, and the sun disk itself was named Aten, and that's what Akhenaten decided to worship. Not only did he decide that Aten, the sun disk, was the most important god, he decided it was the only god that anybody needed to worship. So he created an entirely new monotheistic religion that was a cult of this sun disk Aten. Now he didn't just do that. He also moved the Egyptian capital from Thebes, which is a really powerful old city that it had been ruling from for many, many, many centuries, to a place called Amarna, which he named Akhetaten. And that's where he created this new cult, complete with new priests, new artwork, new buildings, all to worship the sun god Aten. Now, some historians could say that he was the greatest idealist in the world. He was a brilliant revolutionary thinker, unafraid to be individual. Or maybe he was just barking mad. Now, another cool thing about Akhenaten, which a lot of you may recognize, is that he was probably the father of the famous pharaoh King Tut, or Tutankhamun. We'll talk about King Tut in a moment. But after Akhenaten died, 
he was erased from history by pharaohs who succeeded him because I think everybody was just embarrassed. It was kind of this, you know, oh, we had these 20 years in Amarna worshiping a new god. We can forget about that now. Let's go back to what we know, what all the common people believe, and what everybody wants to believe, which is our traditional polytheistic religion. So it didn't last very long because, as I said, everybody tried to erase Akhenaten. Akhenaten was succeeded by a pharaoh named Smenkar. We don't know exactly who Smenkar was, and he only ruled for a hot sec. He was either the brother of Akhenaten or one of his sons, and he continued Atenism a bit, albeit not as strongly as Akhenaten had, and so for that reason he was also mostly erased from history, and we don't know very much about him. A cool side effect of marrying brother to sister for centuries in the royal line is that there was inbreeding in ancient Egypt. Inbreeding is very famous among the kings and queens of Europe, but it was also big in ancient Egypt because, as I said, pharaohs almost always married their sisters to keep the bloodline pure. So there's some historical debate about the genetics of Akhenaten, because when he's depicted in contemporary art, he looks unusually androgynous. Now this may be because Aten was sort of an androgynous god, and so Akhenaten was copying him. Or it could be that he had a genetic illness from inbreeding like King Tut, who, as I said, may have been his son and was definitely inbred. But before we get to King Tut, let's talk about Akhenaten's wife. Her name is Nefertiti. You may have heard of her because she has this super famous bust, which is a carving from the shoulders up that you have seen probably pictures of everywhere. So when you think of a famous bust of an Egyptian woman, I bet it's her. It's one of the most copied pieces of art in all of history. And she was cool. She was very powerful. She was very smart. And she had a role, too, of course, in this religious revolution because she was Akhenaten's wife. She also had the magical ability to have an absolutely absurd number of children without modern medicine. Um, she had at least six daughters, and we have no idea how many sons. After Smenkar, who was that pharaoh who reigned for a second after Akhenaten, there was definitely a female pharaoh, a woman who was not just the queen, but ruled completely in her own right and under her own power, just like Hatshepsut. She's called Neferne Pharaohaten, and we're pretty sure, many historians are pretty sure, that she and Nefertiti are the same person. Neferne Pharaohaten and Nefertiti are one and the same, which would make her the third indigenous female pharaoh of Egypt. If Nefertiti is the same as Neferne Pharaohaten, I don't know that her reign is the most impressive of all the female pharaohs because it only lasted two years and it's where Amarna, the capital that Akhenaten had built, was abandoned, Atenism was abandoned, and everything was moved back to Thebes where it originally was. But that doesn't mean that she wasn't a powerful and impressive woman because as Akhenaten's wife, she had a lot of influence. Okay, so let's finish off with King Tut. King Tut is really famous because when his tomb was discovered, it was one of the most intact, and still is to this day, tombs of a pharaoh of ancient Egypt. So there's so much we can learn from each of these tombs, and they're filled with artwork and valuables and mummies. King Tut's mummy we have. Um, he was probably the son of Akhenaten, we're pretty sure. He was probably not the son of Nefertiti, so he most likely was born to a lesser wife. He inherited the throne at age eight or nine, and of course he wasn't making decisions yet when he was eight, so he had this vizier guy named Ai, who was probably related to him, we're not sure, great uncle, something like that. 
Near the end of the previous reign of Neferne-Ferowatan, whoever she was, maybe Nefertiti, the capital moved back to Thebes from Amarna, and everybody got embarrassed about Akhenaten and decided that they'd had enough of all this Atenism mess. So King Tut, born Tutankhaten, named by his father, something, we don't know exactly what the name means, but something having to do with worshipping Aten and honoring Aten, he married his half-sister, who was definitely a daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, whose name was Ankesenaten. And both of them had a big, stop, dad, you're embarrassing me moment. So they changed their names so that they wouldn't be associated with Atenism anymore. She became Ankesenaman for Amun-Ra, and he became Tutankhamun as well. That's how he's now remembered, Tutankhamun. So what did King Tut do during his reign? He helped undo Atenism. As I said, it had started around the time of his reign beginning, but he helped restore monuments from pre-Atenism and removed a lot of Atenistic artwork. He also reburied his father Akhenaten in the Valley of Kings. Akhenaten had originally been buried in Amarna near the temples he'd built to Aten, which is what he'd wanted. And King Tut was like, this is really embarrassing. So he moved his dad to the Valley of Kings, like everybody else from this dynasty, to try to make them fit in more. Now, King Tut definitely had some genetic shenanigans going on from inbreeding. He had bone necrosis, scoliosis, weird feet, and a bunch of other stuff which historians haven't decided about yet. We're not sure what caused it. His skeleton is totally wonky, but we don't know exactly what condition he had that caused the wonkiness. He also got malaria a bunch of times during his life, which didn't kill him, but is fun. Anyway, so this guy, clearly not the picture of health. And he died aged either 18 or 19 in about 1323 BCE. He had no kids, and he was succeeded by that vizier guy I mentioned, who was originally his regent, named Ai, for a few years, again, some kind of relative, and then the 18th dynasty ended. I was the last one. So Tutankhamun is the last famous and powerful king of the 18th dynasty. On my website, I'm going to link to some interesting books that I loved reading when I was younger that are connected to ancient Egypt and its mythology and history. I totally recommend checking them out and reading them. And we're going to be talking about Egypt again next week because we're going to be talking about the Ptolemaic dynasty. That's a thousand years after King Tut. That's when Cleopatra ruled. And so we're going to talk about her and her predecessors and the context in which she lived next week. And I'm really excited. So thank you guys so much for listening. And I can't wait to see you again next time for some more cool women of history.